Well, good morning. It's good to see all, all of you. If you've got a Bible, um, you can grab it and make your way to uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, trying to find the page number for you. I don't know if we're going to have it up there. Um, but that's on page 534. Also, you can pause in 1 Corinthians 5. That's on page 620. We'll be spending some time in those uh, two locations. We'll hit a few others, but it's particularly in those. And if you're a guest with us this week, uh, my name is Joseph Stiegel. I'm the lead pastor here at Providence, and we are in our final week of a nine-week series on the church. And we've been primarily, so final week, that should have gotten a, you know, a hallelujah and an amen from you guys. Final week on that, uh, and we've been primarily seeking to answer the question of how is the church structured? All right, how is it to be led? How is it to be structured? And as we study through Scripture, we've seen that the church is to be elder-led, is to be deconserved, and is to be congregationally governed. And so we really kind of wrapped up that portion of this study through the church two weeks ago. And over the final two weeks, we've really just been camping out well, last week and this week, we're camping out on what does it mean to be a member of a church? And so last week we talked about that with broad stroke brush, you know, with, with, with broad uh, brush strokes, just kind of big picture. What does it mean to be a member of the church? And we looked at the, the, the mandate from Scripture to be a member of a local church, either this one or another one that preaches the Bible, that that's a mandate from Scripture, that we'd be members of a local church. And then we looked at the... Um, at the, the purpose and the gift of membership. And we really talked about, you know, spiritual formation and evangelism and living as a family. And so kind of flowing directly out of that this week, we come to uh, a, a, a new aspect of membership that flows directly out of that care and that love and that concern and that spurring one another on to love and good deeds that we're to walk in as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's an aspect of that that's not talked about a whole lot. It's either misunderstood in a lot of ways or just ignored in other ways. And that's the aspect of church discipline. All right. The aspect of church discipline, not uh, a, a topic that that, you know, is, uh, you know, what is this? December 11th, Merry Christmas Church Discipline It's not a normal one. Uh, for December 11th, but it is an important one, and it's through the series where we're, you know, kind of walking and wrapping up. And so maybe it's not an idea, uh, you know, that church growth experts would be like, oh, you should preach on this, but it is something that the church expert, the bridegroom of the church, Jesus says, talk about, because it's his idea. And we'll camp out on Matthew 18 primarily today. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about church discipline today. And the flow of the sermon is, isn't as linear as I would like it to be. Isn't as linear as it normally is. And I think in, in some ways that kind of matches the idea of church discipline. Because it's not linear. It's not always black and white. It's messy. The sermon's kind of messy and it's going to leave a lot of dangling strings. But hopefully by the time we get to point five, we'll kind of cinch those up and be able to kind of walk out of here with my goal being that you understand at least a little bit more about what church discipline is, its purpose, why it exists, what's it about, doesn't that seem really weird and whatnot, understand at least a little bit more about that than you did when you walked in. And so let, let's, let's, let's get to it. Church discipline in its narrowest form, okay, narrowest form here for just a minute, we'll broaden it out, but in its narrowest form is excommunication from the church. Okay, it's being removed from membership in the church. And so it's the church collectively saying that based upon someone's longstanding, habitual and characteristically unrepentant lifestyle, that based upon that, and we'll come back to those words, very important, based upon those things that the church can collectively no longer publicly affirm your profession of faith in Christ, that you claim to that Jesus is your Lord, but you don't live under his lordship. You live antithetical to that. And it's the church saying, hey, we heard that. We thought that was true. But now based upon not based upon your sin, but based upon unrepentance over a long period of time, we we can't affirm that anymore. And so it's not the church saying we're declaring you It's the church. And it's not the church saying we're making you that It's the church declaring we can't vouch for it anymore. So that's in its narrowest sense. But in reality, church discipline is a lot larger than that, okay? That's just the worst case scenario. Church discipline is a lot bigger than that. In one sense, what we're doing right now is church discipline in the sense of formative 
discipline. But when you hear the word church discipline, it's primarily talking about corrective church discipline. And that's the sense that we're going to be using it in today. But it's still a lot bigger than just excommunication, just removing someone from membership. I mean, fundamentally, what church discipline is all about is the simple act of the church seeking to ensure that Jesus's representatives on earth represent him and not someone else, that they truly are repping Jesus, showing what Jesus looks like, how Jesus lives, how Jesus calls his church to live. And so it's the church being the church and holding one another accountable, all right, one of those, one another that you've covenanted with, holding one another accountable to endeavor, keyword, endeavor or strive to live with your lives what you espouse with your lips. You're going to fail, you're going to slip, you're going to fall. We're sinners, right? We've, if you're in Christ, though, you are, as Luther put it, simul justus et peccator, it means at the same time justified and a sinner. So we're going to slip, we're going to fail, but we're striving, we're endeavoring, we're fighting, we're pushing. And we talked about last week, like, you can't do that without the church. We're weak. We need help. We need one another. God set it up this way. It's in, Christianity is inherently corporate. That our spiritual formation and our growth in Christ and our perseverance in the faith is not independent of one another, but it's interdependent upon one another. We need one another. The body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. And so church discipline is all about when, when things get a little sideways. Someone you've covenanted to love and to walk together towards Christ and pursuing holiness and living the Christian life. It's someone loving you enough to come to you and say, hey, something's off here. What's going on? You're not representing Jesus well. You're not living a life in keeping with what you claim. So what's going on? I love you, brother. I'm for you, brother. And I want to talk. What's going on here? And so again, it's someone loving you enough to come say that to you. And so number one in your notes, the motivation of church discipline is love. It's not punitive. It's not vengeance. It's not, oh, you sinned, so we're going to bring the morality police after you. It is a motivation of love. A love for the one who is in unrepentant sin. A love for the watching world. A love for the church's protection. And a love for our Lord and King Jesus. And so we're just going to kind of walk through there. Thinking about like, like love. What is it? 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient and it's kind and it doesn't envy and it doesn't boast and it isn't arrogant and it's not rude and it doesn't insist on its own way. Right? And it isn't irritable or resentful and it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. And so kind of walking through those four things like love for the individual and then non-believers and then the protection of the church and King Jesus. A couple of questions I'm going to throw out and this is out loud. This is a time for you to, uh, to, 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 to answer out loud. Does Jesus like sin? No. Is sin disobedience to God? Yes. When we disobey God, does that make him happy? Does he bless disobedience? Does it go well for us long term when we build our lives in blatant disregard for God's authority over us? No. And so church discipline is born out of a love for our brother and sister where like if we saw their house was on fire, we would tell them, your house is on fire. Get out. If we saw them head, running headlong for a cliff that they are blind to, we would tell them, stop. You're going to go off the cliff. And I love you. Don't do that. And so church discipline is lovely and firmly, at times warning, straying sheep to come back to the fold that you're straying and I'm nervous for you. Come back. 
One guy I read this week put it like this, and I think he nails it. He says, local churches exist in part to protect us from ourselves. It's the brothers and sisters around us who love us and are committed to our good that help us to see the things we cannot see about ourselves. We are not the world's experts on us. And so it's motivated by love for the individual. It's also motivated by love for non-believers. Because Jesus intended that our lives back up our words. And when our lives don't back up our words, people are like, well, what's different about you, know, you claiming to be a Christian and, and, and anyone else? It, it, you know, the lines are blurred. There's no distinction. And so actually our evangelistic task is harmed. I mean, just look at the world around us today. That's part of it. One writer put it like this, undisciplined churches have actually made it harder for people to hear the good news of new life in Jesus Christ. Because when a claimed believer is walking in habitual, and everybody's going to sin, everyone's going to slip, everyone's gonna, but in habitual, unrepentant sin, then that distinction between a Christian and, how, and representing Jesus and someone who isn't, that is blurred and it is confused. Thirdly, church discipline is born out of a love for the church. We're going to get to 1 Corinthians 5 here in just a few moments. But what's going on there is is not the story of a repentant brother struggling. All right. What's going on in that is you've got a you've got a man who is actively uh, having sex with his stepmother and he's calling the church to celebrate this or at least accept it. All right. And, 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 and he's telling him, you know, isn't God's grace so great that I can do this and he'll forgive me and I can just keep going on it, trusting on his grace, but just keep living this out. And Paul comes in and is like, no, that is evil. That is antithetical to the gospel. And you're attempting to get people to be OK with that is unbelievably dangerous to the church and the holiness of my people. And then finally, church discipline is motivated by a love for Christ. John MacArthur sums this up like this. He says, God's desire for his children here on earth is purity of life. It's impossible to study scripture attentively and not be overwhelmingly convinced that God seeks above all else for his people to be holy. And that he is grieved by sin of any kind. Directly quoting God's command in the Old Testament, Peter commanded the church, you shall be holy for I am holy. Because God is so concerned for the holiness of his people, they should be equally concerned. The church cannot teach and preach a message that it does not live and have any integrity before God or even before the world. But somebody's like, whoa, 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 Joe. Luke 6 37, thou shalt not judge. You are right. But when Jesus says, thou shalt not judge, he's not talking about the fact that you can't ever judge right from wrong. Sin. That's what he does all the time. And it's what he calls his church to do, as we're going to see in Matthew 18. What he's talking about there in particular is don't be an antagonistic, pharisaical, judgmental, legalistic jerk. Okay, Don't live your life like that. But he's not saying you can't ever make a judgment call on anything. This is one of the most ripped out of context verses in all the Bible. I mean, 1 Corinthians 5, again, we're going to get there in a minute, but when Paul's kind of talking to that guy, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Listen to this, he's talking about judging inside. Is it not those inside the church whom you were to judge? Uses that word. God judges the outside. Unfortunately, a lot of times we get this backwards in the church and we'll let sins of things like gluttony and gossip and bitterness and laziness and narcissism and idolatry and racism go in the church. But then outside the church, we want to become the morality police and just nitpicking to people to death, illogically expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. Why? They're not going... like. Do you see the idiocy of that? Why, why would they? They don't need morality. They need Jesus. But Christians should expect Christians to act like Christians. But we shouldn't expect non-Christians to act that way. 
And so Christians, all right, in, in sin, motivated by love for them and, and non-believers and, and the church and our Lord Jesus Christ, all right, Christians in sin, we, we call them out. We tell them to repent. That's the church being the church. And we do it with love. And we do it with grace. And we do it with humility. Galatians 6.1, we'll read in a minute. But I've alluded enough to, we'll read in a minute. Let's just read some. And so if you've got your Bible, Matthew 18, let's do that. Matthew chapter 18, 534. Pick it up in verse 15. I'll make a few comments on these, but we're, I'm going to hold because we'll be particularly coming back to several of these. If your brother, here we go, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, this is the keys. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. But where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So just a couple of things here. The whole call here that you see, the whole goal, and we'll be hitting on this in point three, is repentance. The whole goal is repentance. And notice how it's kind of a widening circle, implying like keep it as small as possible until repentance comes. But then behind all of that, again, just, I mean, like the underlying idea here in Matthew chapter 18 is that Jesus expects for his church to look different than the world. That we're not to live like pagans and tax collectors. All right, keep, keep, like mark that and then flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is on page 620. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of the ones that's around you. And if you don't own one, take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. Page 620, 1 Corinthians 5. Mark this one also. We'll be coming back to it at the end. And here's what it says. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Probably, probably stepmom. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this to... Uh, let. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so this is the church assembling, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's just a fancy way of saying declare him to be a non-believer. Because he's not, uh, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, right? If, you, if you're not of Christ, you may be blind to it, but you're of the world, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. That's, that's how Paul's laying that out. Just declare him to be a non-believer because that's what he is. And then verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You don't have to flip to these, but Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. 
Paul's writing again, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche, all right, probably deaconesses in the church of Philippi, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so he just called out these two women publicly to the church at Philippi. They need to get along and they're not. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. I'm just this is number two if you don't if you didn't pick up on it, biblical precedence. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Now regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, notice persist, we're not talking like slip and fall, persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All right, so, so taking all of these verses together, the, the point, one of the points is that God cares about both our understanding of the truth and our living of it. But then the second point, like when you look at all of these responses of Paul, put him out of the, your fellowship, hand him over to Satan, do not associate with him, with such a man do not even eat, keep away from him, take special note of him, and then again, handed him over to Satan, rebuked, rebuked people publicly, told him to have nothing to do with him. Is Paul being overly severe here? I mean, that is a bunch of judging and kicking people out of church. Not unlike the Baptists prior to the 19th century, when every year 2% of the church was excommunicated. So is he being overly severe here? No. He's loving a sinning person enough to tell them your house is on fire. You don't appear to be a believer. Get out. Repent. Come back to Christ. He's loving the world enough to say there's a distinction between the way a Christian lives and the way the world lives. And that person's not living as a Christian. He's loving the church enough to help protect them from unleavened bread seeping in. And everybody's saying, that's okay. No problem with that. And then he's loving Jesus enough to obey him in the easy things and... The hard ones. And so again, church discipline is all motivated by love with a goal of, and this is number three, the goal here is repentance. Repentance. Right? The purpose of church discipline is not punitive. It's not, you know, punishment. It's, it's not that, no
It's about repentance. It's about restoration. It's about protection of the church. And so the goal is not punishment. It's repentance. Look at Matthew chapter 18 again. 534. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, Right? He agrees with you. He repents. You have gained your brother. If you write in your Bible, I would circle that, highlight, whatever you want to call it, gained your brother. That's the key idea here. And when we, when we engage someone all right, over their sin, our intent is not to be right. Our intent is not to like, flex our maturity or try to uh, show off our knowledge of the Scriptures. What we're, we approach them in humility with a goal born out of love for them, non-believers, the church, Jesus. All right? Born out of love for them to help them remember God is for you. And the commands of God are for your joy and they're for your good and for your gladness of heart and the fullness of life for you. And so we plead with them, brother and sister, the path you're going down right now leads to death. God in His commands is not trying to take things from you. He's trying to lead you into joy, into life, into His best. He set this up. His plans, like He knows how it works best. You're not smarter than God. Trust Him. Pursue Him. Obey Him. That's what we're doing in church discipline. One person is going to another person. And if we approach them and lovingly as we can and in all humility and they say, you know what? Forget you. God wants above all things for me to be happy. And this makes me happy. And what do we do? Well, we go and grab two or three more people. One of whom's probably an elder. And we go back to them. But we do not go back to them. As Matt Chandler put it, all right, this isn't pitchforks and torches. It's not the way it works. If it's getting to that point, we've already lost. This is, brother, you're in the street and you, you can't see and you can't hear and there's a truck coming and so I'm going to come and decleat you and tackle you and, so that you don't get run over. I love you enough to tackle you so that you don't get run over. And so we grab two or three and we go and we sit down and we plead with them again. Please don't do this, brother. Please don't go this way. You've entered into covenant. You've promised to do these things. What about all the 59 one another's of the New Testament? What about the grace of God? What about the, the, the moment when Jesus rescued you out of your sin and called you to himself and, 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 and gave you eternal life and forgiveness? What about all that? We're in covenant to pursue Jesus together. And I'm, I'm concerned and I'm nervous for you. What are you doing? Don't do this. And if he tells the three or four of you, forget you. God wants me to be happy and I don't care what the Bible says. I know this is right for me. I know what you're saying is true from the Bible, but I don't really care. I'm going to do what I want to do because God wants me above all things to be happy he told me this is okay. Well, now it goes to the church. And we'll come back to that. But again, the goal is that that never happens. The goal is repentance. Even when it gets to the church, the goal is still repentance. The goal is turning away. The famed World War II martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a great little book you should read called Life Together wrote this. He said, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons another to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Not in the legalistic sense of, you know, finding things that aren't in Scripture and saying we need to obey this and constructing this whole thing outside of Scripture. We don't want to be legalistic, but at the same time, we cannot expect less of one another than Jesus does. He calls us, be holy because I am holy. 
and we're going to slip and we're going to fall and we're going to struggle. But it's a striving. It's a fighting. It's a pushing forward. And so we call, brother, your house is on fire. Get out. Get out. That's the goal here, that, that the person would repent of their sin. And repentance, what does it mean? It means turning. Turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Now, repentance does not mean, lest we get confused here, that the person will never, ever, ever slip and fall again in that particular way. What it means is they are waging war on it. They're fighting it. Colossians 3, they're seeking to put to death what is earthly in them. And so they're fighting, they're striving, they're turning from sin, they're turning to Christ. That's the goal here. Repentance, that's the goal. Well, so does this just mean then that we go around like inspector gadgets looking for sin in people's lives so we can just call it out and show them how holy we are and be all self-righteous? Is that, is that the goal here? No. No. That's not the goal here. The cause for church discipline, and you need to hear this very clearly, is not sin. Not even gross or grave sin but sin that the sinner refuses habitually and, and, and just becoming characteristic of their life like to repent of. That they habitually choose not to repent of. That's the cause for church discipline. Folks who don't repent. Lack of truthfulness, a lack of repentance. I mean, look at Matthew 18, again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, ah, you're right. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I did that. That is against what God's want. You're so right. I repent. I turn. Help me walk away from that. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And he, if all right, so you're hoping he listens here, but if he refuses to listen to that bigger crowd, now you go even bigger and you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, well, then you let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so church discipline, I mean, is not for the brother who's weak and who falls, but who repents. It's for the rebellious one who denies their sin or refuses to authentically repent of it. And so church discipline is only for purposefully rebellious, habitual, and characteristically unrepentant sinners. That's who it's for. And so number four in your notes, the cause of church discipline, habitual, characteristic, unrepentance. Habitual, characteristic, unrepentance. And so why is that the cause? Because Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot abide for long in known sin. They will get uncomfortable with it. Courtesy of the Holy Spirit. He will work. He will convict. And they cannot continue for long in known habitual sin. They will repent at some point. Not perfectly. They're still going to slip, but they're striving. They're making war. They're fighting against it. And sometimes it takes someone in love and humility speaking into their lives to help open their eyes. Oh, the house is on fire. Oh, the cliff is right there. Take someone metaphorically or maybe practically grabbing them by the shoulders, looking them in the eyes and saying, wake up, brother, wake up. Because straight up, habitual and like habitually and un repentive sin, people who, who habitually and unrepentively sin will go to hell. And you know that if you're a believer in Jesus. If you don't trust Jesus, if you don't repent and believe the gospel, you go to hell. But if you live a life where you don't ever repent of this thing, it doesn't matter if you prayed the sinner's prayer 28 times. It hasn't taken root in the heart. 
one evidence that you have genuine faith in Christ is that you're fighting sin. Again, you're going to slip, you're going to fall, you're going to fail. Everybody in this room, who everybody in this room, regardless if you claim Christ or not, is a sinner. All right? But when you're not fighting, when you're just continuing and you're just saying, I know Scripture, but I'm going to do this. I don't care. I'm my own God. I do what I want. Brother, sister, if that is true of you and there's never repentance, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So such were some of you. All right. So if you were justified, if you were sanctified, if you were free from those things, you are a believer. But if you never repent of these things and you think I can live with God and I can have my pet sin and just continue on with it, the word, the past tense of those things never happened. If it did, you ultimately may take years, may take time. You ultimately repent. You will. The Holy Spirit will bother you enough like a pebble in your shoe till you repent. And that's His grace. And that's His goodness. And so, in other words, what this verse is teaching us is don't think that you can get away with an unrepentantly sinful lifestyle. Unrepentantly sinful lifestyles do not characterize citizens of God's kingdom. I mean, Christian sin, yes. But they are repenting sinners. And so an unrepentant Christian, that's an oxymoron. Unrepentant Christian. That's an oxymoron. And so again, church discipline, it is not about punishment. It's not about retribution. It's about repentance because indwelled by the Holy Spirit, believers will repent eventually. And if they don't ever, then they're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're not talking like this is a short, long term. And if they're, and if we can't vouch for their membership for, for their, and if we can't vouch for their salvation and publicly affirm, yep, they are indeed a believer. Insofar as we can tell, if we can't vouch for that anymore, that's where removal from church membership comes into play. And so this idea of repentance, Jonathan Lehman notes a few verses before Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 about church discipline, All right, which starts in verse 15. If you go back to verse 8, a few verses before that, he provides us with help for determining whether an individual is characteristically repentant. Would the person be willing to cut off a hand or tear out an eye rather than repeat the sin? That is to say, is he or she willing to do whatever it takes to fight against the sin? Repenting people typically are zealous about casting off their sin. That's what God's Spirit does inside of them. When this happens, one can expect to see a willingness to, ex to accept outside counsel, a willingness to inconvenience their schedules, a willingness to confess embarrassing things, and a willingness to make financial sacrifices or lose friends, or end relationships. And so again, repentance doesn't mean the person's never going to slip, they're never going to struggle, they're never going to fall. It just means they're now waging war on it. They're fighting it. They're turning from it, and they're turning to Christ. And so the cause of church discipline is not sin. Not even grave or gross sin. It's a lifestyle of habitual, characteristic unrepentance. Well, then what's the process? Like, like church discipline, if it's bigger than just excommunion, what's the process? We've kind of hit it a little bit, so I'll kind of go fast as I can in a few places, but go right back to Matthew 28. We'll get it again. If your brother sins against you and tell, go, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And that's the goal, to gain your brother. Not to punish, not to... You're trying to gain your brother. And so step one, with their sin, you are to go to your brother in love, with grace and humility. Galatians 6.1, we're trying to do this. I don't know if I read that to you. Let me read Galatians 6.1 to you. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so we go in a spirit of gentleness, we go in a spirit of grace, we go in a spirit of humility, again, not trying to flex, for sure not trying to be, you know, spiritual garbage inspectors or theological peeping toms. This is just like when you, in the case of something habitual and something dangerous to the person and others... You go to them. Step one, one-on-one. The only exception to that is maybe if, if it's a pastor or an elder. In that case, you go with two or three witnesses. First Timothy 5. But in general, step one, you go to them individually and you lovingly confront, lovingly counsel, and encourage him to genuinely repent. And folks, that like should be happening all the time in your relationships, community groups, men's groups, women's groups, marriages, right across just like membership connections in the church. I've participated in this like one on one thing literally hundreds of times in my eight years here. I've had it done to me multiple times. Joe, you something you you appear to be. Right? That, that's just kind. And we should invite that. We need help. We're going to struggle. The church is there for this. So step one, one-on-one. Step two, after a period of time, if he or she's still unrepentant, then you go with a couple more people. All right? Again, not because you've got pitchforks and, and torches and you're coming after them. It tells us here so that, so that uh, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is, you're guaranteeing clear communication and people can pray and they can discern and help. And so this is a loving thing. This is a caring thing. This is reminding the person God's for you. He's not against you. He's not trying to take from you. He's trying to lead you. Trust him. Believe him. Follow him. He's smarter than you. Go where he says go. Sheep, you're straying. Come back. And if he or she is still unrepentant, what do you do? You keep doing step two over and 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 over. But eventually, if still forget you, I'm going to do what I want to do. Then the elders tell it to the church. And that usually would happen at something like a members meeting, not 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 in here, usually at a members meeting. And it may not be all the details of a situation, but enough for the church to pray for the person. Enough for the church to, to pray for them and, and to encourage those who know the person personally to call them and reach out to them and care for them and love them and call them to come back to the fold. And then after months of that, with the goal of repentance, and at any point in here, if repentance happens, man, restoration, grab the fattened calf, we're throwing a party, the prodigal is returned. But if repentance still hasn't happened, and they're still saying, forget you, I'm going to do what I want to do. I know what the Word of God says, but I don't care. I love this more. I want this more. At that point, the church has to remove them from membership. And we treat them as tax collectors and pagans. And what does that mean? We treat them as unbelievers. All right? And how do we treat unbelievers? We love them. We pray for them. We evangelize them. We share the gospel with them. We invite them to church. So, so, so church discipline, except in extreme circumstances, like 1 Corinthians 5, except in, except in extreme circumstances, it's not like church discipline happens and you, people can't be here. In fact, you want them here, right? You want them to hear the gospel. You want them to hear the good news proclaimed. You want them to hear them called to mercy and grace and forgiveness. Now, they can't take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who are, mem- or those for who are um, uh, believers of, of, of believers in Christ in good standing in their local church. But you want them here. You want them, you want them to hear the good news. And so that's how you treat 
a tax collector and a pagan. You love them. You preach the gospel. You hug them. You welcome them. You pray for them. And just to be real clear again, the question that moves a church to formal church discipline, excommunication is a hard word, removal of membership, the question that moves them then is when two or three witnesses and eventually the church cannot see any level of repentance in a habitual, characteristically unrepentant person. They don't see any. The person repeatedly refuses to repent such that their profession of faith in Jesus as their Lord is not believable. You say He's your Lord, but there's no proof. There's no evidence of that. It's where the person clenches their fist so tightly around a sin that it outweighs all protestations of faith. And when that happens, and when a member's failure to represent Jesus becomes so characteristic and habitual that the church can no longer publicly affirm their profession of faith, that's when the church has to remove them from. They have to remove their affirmation of a person's statement of faith. And if they can't affirm that, they are indeed a believer. And you have to be a believer to be a member of the church. Therefore, they're removed from membership. That's the worst case scenario. And that is usually through snot wiping, eye burning, gut wrenching, tears and pain after tons. I mean, last resort. Months and months and months of prayer and work and conversations and pleading. This is not fast. Right? But that's the norm of the process. Always seeking repentance and it shuts down when repentance happens. We grab the fattened calf and we celebrate. And most of that the church will never see because it happens way before it goes to the church. But that's still kind of the process of church discipline. But sometimes it's a whole lot faster than that. 1 Corinthians 5. When you look at 1 Corinthians 5, there's never go with one. There's never go with two. It's get the brother out now. Purge the evil from among you now. He's not welcome. He's damaging the church because he's trying to get everybody to say it's okay what he's doing. Like, Scripture's wrong. I'm right. But even then, the desire when it says turn him over to Satan. Again, just a fancy way of saying he's an unbeliever. Even the desire of them is that he would firmly, like, firmly realize he's not a believer and recognize he needs to come to repentance and faith. And so none of this is like awesome to talk about. It's not fun. But it's born out of love. It's about wanting to represent Jesus well, ultimately. Preserve His name. And the love of someone you've covenanted together with. And so I'll close kind of with this illustration. As most of you know, um, my four-year-old daughter was born with several life-threatening issues. One was called Hirschsprung's disease. All right, something that could kill her. And when she was seven days old, they removed a portion of her diseased colon right, so that she could live. She also got something called necrotizing enterocolitis twice. Just so you know, one out of four children who get that died. She got it twice. The Lord was gracious. And to fight that, they had to remove everything from her stomach for seven days. So she could not eat. We had to pull the G-tube out of her nose that fed her, her feeding tube because she couldn't. We had to seven days, no food, no water. Nothing, no ice, no nothing. They kept her alive with fats and liquids pumped through the IV, through her pick line. They kept her alive with that. Seven days, twice. You know how much a baby wants to eat? And she can't? That wasn't fun. She also had an arterial ventricular septal defect. So basically her heart was like Swiss cheese, the doctor tells us, and basically had one chamber, not four. So they had to go in when she was three months old after keeping her alive on meds. When she was three months, they're like, we got to do it now. We can't keep prolonging this. And they went in and they built chambers and they built valves in her heart. And to do that, and I'm sorry if you have a weak stomach here, but to do that, they sawed her sternum open, cracked that thing open, turned her heart off, literally turned it off, right? And so things to get to her lungs and her brain uh, and, and the rest of her organs, that's happening by a machine pumping that to those organs so she'll stay alive. Her heart is turned off. 
And they cut the heart open, fillet that thing, and build walls and chambers and valves, shut it, suture that thing up, close her up, glue that, and then invite us to come in and see her. And when we go in and see her, she's bloated. She's huge. And she's got literally 20 at least drips going into her, wires everywhere. And here's the deal. That cutting on her sucked. I'm sorry, but there's no other word to describe it. It was awful. It was terrible. But look right at me. It saved her life. God used it to save her life. And church discipline is the same thing. Sometimes God uses His people to lovingly wound you so that you might be saved. It's all about winning a brother back. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you're worth it. You're worth me coming to you or another brother coming to you and you getting royally ticked off at them because how dare you? But they do it out of love, born out of love and concern for you and your soul. And Jesus is worth it. And when people repent and are restored, we throw a party, we celebrate the prodigal moment, break out the fattened teeth, the sheep has come back to the fold. That's church discipline. It's not a punitive thing. It's love that's made visible. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your discipline. Hebrews 12, you as a father discipline those you love. Those who are yours. Thank you just that you don't leave us to ourselves. You don't take a hands-off position with us and just let us float on into destruction. And thank you that you've given us a church to help us see and help us walk and help us not be blind anymore to the blindness we walk in so often. We're blind to our own blindness. And you've given us a church to help us open our eyes and wake us up when we're straying and when we're drifting because of your love for us. And so may we be a church that loves one another, never flexes, never tries to show off, never comes with some retribution or punitive, or, but completely and solely seeks the good of our brother or sister in Christ and loves them. No matter what it takes. And help us to forgive as you've forgiven. Help us to be committed to one another as you are committed to us. Help us to mirror and reflect your gospel and your good news to one another. Lay down our lives for one another as you lay down your life for us. It's in Christ's name. Amen.